Tonight we'll be in Matthew 8, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, Matthew 8. Um, we've got some furniture we're trying to get rid of. If anybody's interested here at the church, uh, we replaced the back playroom furniture. And so those are in the hallway. I didn't get a text or email from anybody that wanted it. We put it out in the email. So I'm letting you guys know also. A couple yellow chairs in the nursing room and then another blue chair. And so just ask me about it afterwards if you're interested in any of those things. So, uh, otherwise, they're going to the dump. So, All right, Matthew chapter 8. We've seen our shepherd, Jesus, um, come on the scene, get baptized, get uh, given the task to take care of the sheep. And uh, we see him just move through this role of being a good shepherd. And he is, he's a great shepherd, a beautiful shepherd. And tonight we're like sheep. We've all come in here and we've all gathered together. He's brought us in from scattered throughout all the fields that we go to and we've been eating and some of us are wounded and got stuck in some thorns and maybe got attacked and we're all back in here to get healed up and for God, uh, Jesus, the good shepherd, to just touch us tonight. And um, that's what he's doing. He's had a wonderful sermon on the mount and... Uh, He's gathered the sheep, and he's, he's ready to lead them and to go on, and he's moving around. He's going to look for wounded ones. He's going out to look for ones that are stuck, and, and we see him do this beautiful thing of just caring for people, regardless of whether they trust him or not or whether they believe in him or not. Um, he's out there to care for them, and he takes care of them and wants them to know that he's trustworthy, um, and that'll be the difference uh, tonight, I believe. Um, in verse 1, when he, Jesus, had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately the leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but go your way and show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them, the priests. First thing he does is he touches someone that's not supposed to be touched. Jesus wasn't afraid of sick people. He was willing to go out and touch and minister. And, um, and it wasn't just because he was the son of God. It wasn't because um, he was God himself um, come in the flesh. It was because he had the ability and the gift of God to heal. Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit and was able to do the things and showed us how to do the things that God wants to do with all of us, filled with the Holy Spirit. And so this leper comes up with humility, but with belief, and, and says the prayer, I think, that many of us have probably prayed before. I know that if you're willing, you can make me well. That's really just a statement. Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus, understanding this conversation, understanding the humility, the heart, seeing this person who's been for who knows how long, we don't know how long he's had this leprosy, but has been forced to yell, unclean, unclean, if anybody came within earshot of him because of it being a communicable disease. And it was a, a hard life for those guys. They would oftentimes congregate together because, well, they've all got it, so you can't get it again. And so there would be leper colonies where they would tear, care for one another, do the best they can. And there were a few that would venture off into these leper colonies and, and uh, minister to them and heal them. But oftentimes with long exposure, they'd catch it also. But it was worth it to them, willing to do that sacrifice. And so this person comes up and asks God humbly, I believe you can do this. Will you do this? Are you willing? And Jesus' response was to touch him. Now, he doesn't touch everybody that's sick. He doesn't need to touch everybody that's sick. In fact, in this chapter, we're going to see several times Jesus heals people in different ways, just so that we don't think that there's a formula to it. We, we like to do that. We like lists. We like formulas. We like steps. Um, makes things easier. Um, but Jesus is really trying to get to the supernatural side of this trying to let them know that it's not about the touch, it's not about the way or the manner, it's the willingness, the humility, and the faith mixed together that causes this to take place. That's what happens. It's a, it's a supernatural act. It's beyond our, our, our laws. It's beyond our laws of physics, our natural laws. And Jesus sidesteps those, and uh, they are obedient to him, and he is not obedient to them. And he wants them to see that. 
He says, I am willing, be cleansed, and touches him. Now, this guy hasn't been touched for years. In fact, for a rabbi to touch someone like this would cause them to be unclean, and they'd have to separate and be moved out until they were proven not to catch this disease. And oftentimes, to catch this disease, it'd be months to years before symptoms would show up. They could be around these people, and this Hansen's disease could, could show up from anywhere from 12 months to, to three years away, just from that one contact or from a long period of time with people that had this disease. But Jesus isn't afraid to go out and touch people, not afraid to minister to them, and let them know that they're cared for and loved. That's, that was as important as the healing itself, I think. For him to step back and say, yeah, okay, 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 you're healed, you're healed, is, is a whole different thing. And when the Savior comes up and touches you and says, oh, I'm willing. I'm absolutely willing. There's just so much heart there. So important. Sharing the gospel, giving this good news to people, how we do it is just as important as the message we, we share. Um, leprosy is a, it's a picture of sin is what it is. Leprosy, some, someone contracts leprosy. They begin to work on their nervous system and begins to numb their senses and and uh, the leprosy doesn't really do it. It's, it's, the, it's the numbness that causes the problems. You begin to bang your fingers on things or you uh, burn yourself, and you don't realize it's happened to you. You don't have that natural instinct to pull away from the fire. You don't realize it. Oh, there's flames. You know, wow. Well, that takes a long time to heal if it heals. If you're not paying attention to it, you rebump it, you reopen it. You know what that's like to rebump an old wound, you know? Well, they don't have those senses, those feelings. Sin works the same way in our lives. It begins to numb us. It comes from a long period of time being exposed to it. You're protected for a certain amount of time, and all of a sudden you find yourself numb to the consequences of it. It begins to eat away at your life. It begins to cause damage that you don't feel, and you don't think it's affecting anybody else, but it is. It begins to eat you up. And now Jesus comes to take that problem away from us, that sin away from us, the consequences of our sin. He wants to reach out and touch each one of us tonight. And anyone listening, and anybody watching online, wants to touch us. He doesn't want to just say the words. He doesn't want to just give us John 3.16 or yell out something from across the way. He wants to get into our lives and touch us and let us know that, no, you're not so unclean that I can't touch you, and you're not so unclean that I can't heal you. And take this away from you. No one's, no one's beyond my healing power when it comes to sin. There's so much grace and so much mercy that God has for each person. It's inexhaustible. But it takes this step right here from this leper. It takes this step right here from the sinner. Lord, very first word out of his mouth, Lord, I'm submitting myself to you. If you are willing, you can make me clean. The leper is assured. He has no doubt in his mind that the power for recovery is within Jesus. And that if he's willing to touch him, he will be cleansed. And Jesus says, I am willing. And I hope everyone hears that tonight who doesn't know Jesus and hasn't trusted in him for their salvation, for the forgiveness of sins. That's available for every one of us. I am willing, be cleansed. And it's as simple as that, too. No steps. Now, the priest had a bunch of steps, and the law has a bunch of steps. And without Christ, there were a bunch of steps that they would have to go through. And Jesus says, I want you to go through those steps, and I want you to offer up the sacrifice that you're supposed to offer up from Leviticus chapter 13, since you've been cleansed. And I want you to show that to the priest as a testimony to them. I don't know what that means exactly. My guess is that they've lost faith in such a way that they haven't seen anybody healed from leprosy in a long time. When they see leprosy, it's done. There's no recovering from that. What do you mean you've been healed from leprosy? Uh, let me take a look at this and don't get too close. You know, there's that attitude. They've been in the game long enough that they haven't seen a whole lot of healings. They haven't seen a whole lot of touching. They haven't seen a whole lot of miraculous reversals, you know. The stuff doesn't just go away on its own. He says, I want you to go show them. Don't tell anybody. Just show them that God has touched you. 
And his hope is that those priests would start giving God glory and maybe start having some more faith, start trusting in him again like they used to. Leviticus 13 is where this law is from, for the, and it's a whole chapter. I won't read that to you. But James chapter 5, verses 13 through 15, our walk with the Lord, our New Testament relationship with Christ says this. James, the, the rough apostle, telling us, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. There's some steps there that we like and we follow because you don't want to not do something God's told you to do, so you want to do those things, but there's a formula here, but it's not the steps. It's the same as the steps or the formula that we just saw here. There's humility. You've got to ask for it. There's faith. You have to believe that Jesus can, and the people praying have to believe that Jesus can. There's a whole thing going on there where everybody's coming to God and asking him to touch somebody, to heal them. And he does. See that you tell no one. Verse 5, now, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion, that is a Roman soldier, over 100 men. A legion has 6,000. There were 60 centurions, and therefore 100 men under each one of them. So he's a middle management kind of guy. Pleading with him. This is a Roman soldier pleading with Jesus, saying, Lord, there it is again, submitting himself. My servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I'll come and heal him. He doesn't even ask. There's this servant at home, and he's dreadfully tormented with paralysis and doesn't even bat an eye. Doesn't have to have any questions. There's no, there's no questionnaire, you know, are you, are you a believer? Have you, have you proselyt- are you Jewish but Roman, you know, have you... None of that. I'll come and heal him. Eager. Jesus is so eager. And the centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from the east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go your way. And as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that very same hour, that very that hour. It's amazing. I mean, there's so much there, but first of all, the centurion's a Gentile. If you don't understand what he's getting at, Jesus is saying there are sons of the kingdom that should know that I'm the Messiah, that should be expecting me. I am truly the Israeli Messiah. But Israel is going to be rejecting Jesus for the most part. And what he's telling them here is this Roman soldier has greater faith than most of the Israelites that should understand that I am their Messiah. This Gentile has more faith, and many will come from the east and the west. That's what he means by that. Not, not just, they had it in their mind that they were the only ones, not the example for the world to see. We're the only ones. And he says, no, 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 no. It's those who have faith, those who trust. Those are the ones. And I'm telling you, from the east and the west, they're all going to be sitting with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he, That threw them all. Nobody's heard that before. Nobody's taught that before. When you're small and insignificant, there can be this uh, little man complex that people can get, um, an inferiority complex. And Israel had that in a lot of ways. They're small. Everybody else around them was stronger. I mean, Egypt and all these guys were bigger. And so there was this attitude that they carried with them. The idea that Rome was over them was infuriating. They're like little... You know, yippy dogs just upset that they were on a leash kind of thing. And so there was this idea that you have to make yourself more grand in any way that you can. So we're the, well, that's fine. You can do what you want, but we're the only ones saved. There's just that heart. 
It's a very dangerous place. It's, it's because you want to be proud of yourself, pride, that causes you to lose that humility and openness to anybody that wants to hear you have this pride that you can't get past. And so for all these people listening and following Jesus to hear him say, hey guys, I hope you saw this because I've never seen such faith like this anywhere. And it was including the people following him. And then you let them have some bad news. Even the people in Israel, some are going to go to hell where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. But people like this who just believe and know I don't need to show up, first of all, understand that I am under the authority of my father, but I'm also in authority down here. This guy gets it. He gets it better than anybody in this crowd, including the 12 disciples that are following him. He gets it. He says, you don't need to be coming to my house. I'm not worthy. Well, of course you are. Jesus is always willing and wanting. And so what's funny here for me, what I wrote down was this Gentile, this centurion who has no doctrine is almost easier to minister to than the ones that do have false doctrine. It is so hard to undo false doctrine. You get prideful, you get caught up in it. To to cut that out from under you is to somehow take away your identity, and it's not who we are. This Gentile, this centurion doesn't know what to say. All I know is you can heal. I know that you're sent, like I'm sent oftentimes as a centurion, and I believe that you can heal him, so just say the word and I know it'll be done. So he believes in the supernatural. He's not, um, he's not a medicine man that's going to pull something out of his pocket and give it physically and take care of it. He knows that there is something supernatural taking place here and that you're the one that can do this, and he trusts him. And he notices that. Romans 11, the whole chapter is about this, as many from the east and the west are going to come. And it talks about the Allah. I don't want to go into the whole thing. I mean, it's a teaching in and of itself. Obviously, it's a whole chapter. But I encourage you to read Genesis 11 to understand the place of Israel and the place of the Gentiles. Paul trying to write to the Gentiles, letting them know, because it's in Romans, so it's meant for Romans, right? You understand that? They were beginning to get prideful that they were grafted in. They understood what he taught here, and they began to have the same attitude the Romans did as the Israelites did before Gentiles got saved. They began to say, well, the Israelites rejected their Messiah, and now we're grafted in. And Paul went to slow them down and said, yeah, I'm glad that he did that, but I want you to know that my ministry, although it is to the Gentiles, is to make them jealous so that I can minister to them. Because just because they were cut off doesn't mean they can't be grafted back in. Because you were grafted in from their disobedience, don't think that you can't be cut off from your disobedience and them grafted into your spot. You're just trying to let them all know. Don't let that happen, you know. That's where anti-Semitism comes from today. Many of the churches teach that the church has replaced Israel. They have the same Roman mentality that, yeah, we're saved by grace, but we're saved by grace and they ain't kind of thing. Boy, we need to read that Romans 11, get it straightened out. It's, it's obedience. It's answering the call, and it's for anybody. And so that Romans 11 covers that. Mal- Malachi chapter 1, verse 11 says this, and this is many prophecies, but I just found a really good one that kind of summed it all up, about the Messiah that's going to come, because this is an Old Testament prophet talking about Messiah, Jesus, coming not by name, but in function, says this, from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name, the name of this Messiah, shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place, incense shall be offered to my name and a pure offering. And for my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. It's a prophecy to them to let them know. Gentiles are going to get saved. Even the Gentiles are going to get saved. Exciting. And this is it. And Jesus is saying, this is what I was talking about when I told Malachi to say that, you know. Verse 14. Now, when Jesus had come to Peter's house, so they're kind of moving through. Uh, The the crowd is following him, and and they're moving through, and they're going to these different places, Capernaum and so on. Now they're they're at Peter's house. He saw his wife's mother lying sick with a fever, So he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she arose and served them. 
I know a lot of people like this. I know a lot of ladies like this. That stupid body won't let me serve, won't let me do what I want to do. It's just so frustrating when my body won't let me do what I know I need to do. And as soon as they feel better, they pop out of bed and there they go. You know, they're at it. If they, if they go to bed at all, you, you know people like that. I'm not like that. I'll lay there for, I'll milk it for a couple days after I'm feeling, I just don't know if I should get up yet. <laughs> so he just shows up and there's his Peter's mother-in-law lying sick with fever and so he just touched her hand he wasn't like hey get up lady we're hungry get healed up so you can serve me he just wanted her better you know immediately the fever left her and she hops up I love it just a sweet little moment there you know when evening had come they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were sick, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying he himself took our infirmities and bore our sickness. That's Isaiah 53, 4-5. That should be in your center column reference there, but I'll read it to you because there's a little more to it than just those words. Isaiah 53, verses 4-5 through says, Surely he has borne our griefs, and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. He took everything, not just the fever, not just the leprosy. He took it all. He took away the demons that were fight they were fighting and overtaking them, cast them out. And just healed them, giving them chances, opportunities to, to let go and to receive Christ. You know, Those demons can be quite a battle. And when they're cast out and gone, it gives room, it gives time for that person to accept Christ. Let the Holy Spirit fill their life. There's a place in Scripture that warns us that if that place isn't filled, if that void isn't replaced by the Holy Spirit in that person's life, if they walk away just healed and the demonic presences are gone, but that they're left an open vessel, that there'll be more coming in later on into their life because they haven't filled and left no room that the Holy Spirit can come and fill them, leaving no room, no place for those other demons. And so... Matthew here is trying to get across to them. This is the Messiah. First of all, he proved himself by having wise words, wisdom, born of a virgin, all those things we've covered so far, but also that he's healing and casting out demons. And he has the authority to do that and the power and the heart to do it, the willingness to do it. And so he's proving and showing whoever's reading this, like us, but especially for the Jewish people, he is the Messiah. He's fulfilling. Jesus is fulfilling Isaiah 53, 4, 5 here. Verse 18, and when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. Then a certain scribe came to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man is, has nowhere to lay his head. Then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Well, that's not what you thought he'd say, is it? You know, it's one of those interesting verses. Oh, you know. Well, what he's asking them to do is to count the cost. I understand you want to follow me. I've got a lot of people following me. I mean, there's multitudes following me, and I'm going to go across the sea now. And these guys are like, let us get in the boat with you. We want to, we want to be there, do everything that you're doing. And he's warning them. I don't have a place to lay my head. They actually, the wild animals outside have more comfort than you're going to have following me. And that's something that they needed to think about and to count the costs. And there were some things holding them back. There's my dad's dying. And what does it mean is he's dead and we've got a couple days, we've got to embalm him and we've got to get him into the ground. That's not what they're saying. I mean, he's old in age and eventually he's going to go and we need, I need to be there to bury him. But as soon as he's buried, as soon as that's all done, then I'll begin to follow you. And he says, no, follow me now. Follow me now. There'll be plenty of dead, and what he means is dead in their heart, dead in their spirit, to take care of your dead dad. But you need to follow me now. Don't wait. There's always something that'll cause us to postpone, to put off 
what we know we're supposed to do when it comes to spiritual things, when it comes to everlasting life. I'll have more time. There'll be a better time. A better Right now, I need to focus on this. Right now, this is what needs to happen. And there's nothing more important than to follow Jesus. Everything will fall into place when you begin to follow Jesus. It just does. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying you're going to get everything you'd ever hoped for in your own endeavors, if you leave those to Christ and you just follow Christ, he'll fulfill all those wishes you ever had. No, no, no. No. I, I saw it written this way. You'll never find yourself until you find Christ. Because that's what most of the world is trying to do. They're trying to figure out who they are. How do I manage this world? Who, what kind of person am I? Who is J.D.? I mean, I've got some ideas and some thoughts, but as I venture out in this world and begin to do things, I want to know what kind of man am I? What kind of person am I? What kind of husband am I? What kind of, and you're trying to figure those things out. And you'll never find out what that is until you give yourself to the Lord, until you let yourself be what Christ wants you to be. You cannot find yourself without finding Christ. And so to put it off for other things is, well, it's foolish. Because your goal, your hope is to be the person you want to be or what's a blessing to everybody else in your life. And the only way you can do that is if you follow the Lord. Don't hold off on those decisions and those choices. Count those costs. It seems like the first guy, he's saying, make sure you really mean it when you want to follow me because it's uncomfortable. And the second guy, he's actually saying, don't wait, hurry up and follow me. In Luke chapter 14, verses 27 through 33, it's a long cross-reference, but worth it. It's counting the costs. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Don't call yourself a disciple if you can't bear your cross. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else why the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, Whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. That's hard to interpret that any other way than how it's written. Not that I think we need to, but all means all. Forsaking all. Nothing else matters in my life. It doesn't mean you can't love other people. It doesn't mean you can't take care of other people. It doesn't mean you don't live and serve and do what you need to do on this earth, but It's all in surrender to Christ. It's all under his authority, and he can take or give as he chooses in our lives. We submit to that. And so he causes them to pause and say, sit down and count this cost. You can't do this and just put me in your back pocket and then go on living like you've always wanted to live. That's not acceptable. You need to take up your cross now, look like me, act like me, walk with me, filled with the Holy Spirit, and carry that around as public as I'm carrying it around. And be nailed to it occasionally, like I'm nailed to it. You need to count that cost. And so he tells these two, I'm I'm excited that you want to follow me. That's great, but just make sure you understand, there's no comfort where I'm going. And there are no promises. It's just ministry. It's just service. But this is for everybody. The, the, other, the other thing you can take away from this is some will say, well, yeah, I guess I don't think I can do that. I'm not going to. No, 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 no. No, you're still supposed to follow him, even though there's no bird's nest and there's no hole and there's no place to lay your head. You're still supposed to go. You're still supposed to follow him. And you still have to forsake all and you still have to take up your cross. That's required for every believer. Anybody that wants to go to heaven, anybody that trusts in Christ for this, that he sacrificed his life for our sins, that's what's natural and normal Christianity. We're called to that. Verse 23. 
Now, when he got into, the, into a boat, his disciples followed him. And suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea, so that the boat was covered with the waves. He was asleep. Then his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. But he said to them, Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So the men marveled, saying, Who can this be that even the winds and the, and the sea obey him? The first glimpse into their true understanding of who Jesus was, who is this? Where the sea and the winds obey him. They didn't realize who they were with yet. And I don't know that they ever did until he rose from the dead, obviously, but they're getting a glimpse. They're beginning to understand this. It's more of a rhetorical question. Nobody can stop wind and waves except one, and I'm afraid to say that out loud, basically. The natural laws that we all have to be submitted to in this world, he doesn't, and they submit to him. Who is this? Well, he's the author of those laws. He's the inventor of those laws. He's the one that put those parameters in place to keep us in check and grounded with gravity. You know? And yet he's not bound by those because he wrote them. And so they begin to wonder, who is this? Jesus, his words here in red, verse 26, why are you fearful? Oh, you of little faith. Kind of answers his own question there. You're fearful because you don't trust. I'm asleep on the back of the boat in the middle of this horrible, terrific trial that we're going through, this horrible tempest, and I'm asleep. And I said we're going to the other side. But because of the wind and the waves, and because I'm asleep, and because you're unsure, you wake me up to let me know that we need to be saved, and because we're perishing. And he doesn't understand that, or at least wants them to rethink it. Before he rebukes the wind and the waves, he gets up and says, you have little faith. He expected them to have more faith. He wants their faith to increase. He wants them to be able to go through those tra- this, this, this uh, turbulent time and be able to sit still and be asleep like he's asleep. That's, our, that's his goal. I want you to be asleep in these storms. If I'm asleep, you can rest assured you can sleep. If I'm At peace, you can be at peace. You can rest from this. It's a wonderful thing. Now, later on, the same thing happens. The guys go across. Jesus stays up on the mountain. He's praying, and he sends his guys across ahead of him, and they go through it, and the same thing happens again. And the beautiful thing about that is, regardless of their fear, whatever that's going on, they're rowing. They're not screaming. They're not crying out. They're rowing. They're kind of doing it. You know, now they're not all laying down on the bottom of the boat sleeping, you know. Uh, you know, I don't know that I don't know that I could do that either. Uh, this is great. <laughs> Nothing to worry about here, you know. But they're not freaking out and crying out and looking f- to see where he's, you know, where's Jesus? What's he going to do? No, he said we're going over this row, guys. And they weren't making any progress. And Jesus watching them. Now, that's about a three-mile view. And he's watching them. So that gives you more supernatural insight. He's standing off the mountain, wake up and pray, and he's looking. Oh, they're not going anywhere. They're trying. And so he walks out on the water and meets them. And they freak out because they're seeing Jesus walking on the water. There's a ghost coming. Goes, Don't be afraid. It's me. It's me. And he doesn't rebuke them that time. He just steps on the boat. As soon as he touched the boat, they're immediately at the other side. They just, now we don't know what happened except the laws of physics were suspended. You know, Boom, they were there. Okay. But they did it. Jesus wants these guys, they wants their faith, wants our faith to increase. It's hard at first to trust the Lord. It is hard. It's, it's hard because you're just going off his word and you've never done this before. You've never done anything with him before. And for the first time you're trusting him and all of a sudden, okay, 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 I'm going to do it. You know, and then it works. Oh, all right. Okay, we'll do it again. Hey, it worked again. I'm going to do it again. And all of a sudden, you're strutting, you know. Nothing's going to, you know. This, this is easy. It's not. I know we have our problems and we have our times. We have our fainting fits in the Lord. I understand that. But our faith increases the more we let him show himself strong on our behalf. And we don't figure it out on our own that we truly let him 
do what he wants to do. My faith is increased when I see him step into my life, willing with a loving hand, touching my life and doing what I didn't think maybe he was interested in, but he is because I trusted in him. I know that if you're willing, Lord, you'll do this. I am willing. Hey, you're really here. Something supernatural really happened. There's a really a great, hey, you know? Oh, it's an exciting thing to walk by faith. It's an exciting thing to trust Jesus. It's an exciting thing to watch him step in and fix and change and do and move and direct, you know? And you begin to, that's what walking by faith is, you know? And so he rebukes him. Now, I want you to remember that word. You can circle it. We'll get into it a little bit later on, actually, in verse 32. But he rebuked the wind and the waves, but we won't focus on that right now. And they wondered, who is this? Well, they're getting an idea. Verse 28. Now, when he had come to the other side, to the country of the Gerzanines, uh, which is, and I think it even says in there, there's another way to pronounce that, Gadarenes, I think. Um, but it's spelled this way here, but it could go either way. There met him two demons, or demon-possessed men, coming out of the tombs exceedingly fierce so that no one could pass that way. And suddenly they cried out, saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus, you Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now these guys were just a terror. We know that they're in the tombs from another uh, from this text, and the other, the other gospel just mentions one of them. It doesn't mean there weren't two. He just talks about the one. Um, but these two demon-possessed men come flying out, and we know that they're naked from other, uh, from other texts. Not that that matters, but that's even scarier to see a bunch of crazy naked guys running at you from the tombs. I mean, it doesn't get much worse than that. So much so that the whole town and everybody on that side of the sea knew, just stay away from these guys. Stay away from them. Now, we know from the other gospel, and I don't mean to keep doing that, but it's just a really great story. Um, it's called Decapolis. There's 10 small cities on this side over here. Okay, And Jesus got in this boat with his disciples specifically for this purpose right here, what we're reading, because as soon as this is done, he goes back across. He has one mission, willing to travel through a tempest storm that he had to rebuke to get to these demon-possessed men, and he's going to heal them. And now they're going to stay over there and they're going to minister. But I, spoiler alert, I got there ahead of time, but that's what happens here. So they come running out. Nobody could pass by. And suddenly they cried out saying, what have we to do with you, Jesus, son of God? So they know who he is. They recognize him. These demons inside of these two know who Jesus is. In James chapter 2, verse 19, James warns about those who know of Jesus. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Just identifying Jesus as the Son of God does not make me saved, does not make you saved. Yeah, I know. And so when someone says, are you, you know, are you a Christian? Well, yeah, I'm an American. Mm, not good enough. I mean, you could ask anybody on the street, do you know who Jesus is? Yeah, he's the Christian uh, son of God or something like that. He's, he's supposed to be God come in the flesh or whatever. Yeah, I know that. I know that information. I have that understanding. I've read it in Wikipedia or wherever they read it from. I Googled it. But that doesn't mean they're saved because they have that information or know that. These demons know exactly who Jesus is. They know what kind of power he is. They know his authority. They probably know him better than everybody else around Jesus right now. But he's the son of God and can and does have authority over them. Are you here to torment us before the time? This is too soon. You're not supposed to send us to hell yet. It's not time for the lake of fire. They even know their days are numbered. They know the book of Revelation better than anybody and hasn't even been written yet. They understand their end. This is too soon. You're not supposed to be here. Why are we seeing you? What are you here to do? So, um, now a good way off from them, verse 30, there was a herd of many swine feeding. So the demons begged him, Jesus, saying, if you cast us out, permit us to go away into the herd of swine. Apparently that was better than just being a disembodied spirit. I need to go into something, you know, put us in the swine. And don't ask me questions. I don't know why. Because these swine all commit suicide immediately as soon as they're filled, and the demons go into the water which is what I'm going to talk about here in a minute. 
Can we go into the swine? And he says to them, go. So when they had come out, they went into the herd of swine, and suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place into the sea and perished in the water. Now, see, I got a whole bunch of things going on through my head, and this is all speculation. But, and so you can throw it out. I'm, I'm telling you ahead of time, I don't know if this is true or not or if it's right, but I just find it interesting that they needed to get into that water. They need a vehicle by which to get, because they're not interested in living in swine the rest of their lives and wandering around waiting for some unsuspecting guy to come by and then touch him like we see in the movies, and they move into that body, you know, and now they're, now they're a person again. That's kind of what the movies show us or think. No, we need to get to that water. And I find it interesting that Jesus didn't just quiet or stop or still or whatever. He rebuked the wind and the waves. We've got one mission. We're going to get in this boat, and we're going over there, and we're going to meet those two demon-possessed men, and we're going to cast out the demons. And it seems like everybody in the water, whoever that may be, was doing everything they could to stop them from getting to do what they were going to do, their mission over there, which helps me in a lot of ways. It should help us. Sometimes opposition to the ministry that God's called us to doesn't mean that it isn't God's will. It just means it's going to be very effective if you press on. I don't need to add to that. I just hope you heard that. When God calls you to do something, of course, it's always in our nature to second guess whether we heard from God or not. But just because, don't make your decision just because you've got some opposition coming your way. It could very well be that you're being very effective and they know that. And so Satan is throwing everything he can at you to stop you from doing what God wants you to do. Press on. If Jesus is asleep in your life on the back of the boat, even though there's a a huge storm around you, you can sleep too. If he's running around the boat panicking, you best turn the boat around, you know? But if he's not, hmm, hmm, you know? Please let us go to these swine. All right, go to the swine. So they go. Um, now, that doesn't always happen. Acts chapter 19, verses 13 through 20, Paul was doing his thing. And this is a little side note of what was going on because Paul was able to cast out demons. Jesus was able to cast out demons. And these Jewish itinerant ministers, not saved, not born again, knew that there was power in the name of Jesus. And every time Paul mentioned Jesus, things happened. I mean, it was miraculous. So they took this abracadabra word and they went out to do their own work. Now these guys would charge. That's what I, this, this, this itinerant means here. Not necessarily all the time in the Bible does itinerant mean that they were paying or paid pastors, but in this case it does. They were for hire, okay? And so it says this, Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also there were seven sons of Sceva, um, a Jewish chief priest who did so. So they'd all picked up on this. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? That's got to be the creepiest moment in the Bible right there. You're like, in the name of the one Jesus that Paul preaches, I want you to cast out. Who are you? You're not supposed to talk back to me. You're supposed to be running for some pigs or something. I mean, I, I thought we were looking for swine at this point. I brought a pig with me. Jump into the pig, you know? No. And this is what happens to them. Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded and became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on, all, on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted up the value of them, and the total was 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Well, there's power. I mean, it was a failed exorcism, but there was power from that failed event because these guys didn't believe in Jesus, and it didn't work, you know? There has to be faith in Jesus. There has to be trust in Jesus for our faith to be real. James warns us, your faith without works 
is as dead as your body is without the Spirit. Many people walk around saying, I have faith, but they're lying dead like a corpse on the ground. And it's not exercise, it's not moving. The reason you, the, how we know we have live faith is if we're out there doing, not just saying. Then those who kept them, kept the swine, we're back in Matthew now. Then those who kept them, the swine, fled. And they went away into the city and told everything, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. Now, what would you expect to happen next? What must I do to be saved? You've delivered us from these two evil men that have tormented us in the deck, this 10 city region, Decapolis. What are we supposed to do, Mike? Oh, thank you. <laughs> I mean, it's like the magnificent seven, but it's just one guy. You know, he took care of those terrible men. When they came and saw him, they begged him to depart from their region. That was their response to this miraculous work. When they saw him, Jesus, they begged him to depart from their region. Now, verse 1, chapter 9, that's as far as we'll go. So he got into the boat, to a boat, crossed over, and came to his own city. Mm. A lot of reasons, we think. A lot of speculation, but a lot of reasons. First of all, they didn't like what happened, obviously. They were more concerned about the 2,000 head of swine that they had lost than it was about the two men that were completely tormented by these demons. More so than the havoc that these guys were causing. The nightmares. Can you imagine the kids? You know, if you don't go to sleep, the two demons from the you know tombs are coming to get you. Who knows how these guys were used? But they were good props. They were okay. Maybe they were famous. Maybe people charged money to see there they are over there running around naked, you know. But for some reason, that was okay. They had no interest in these men getting healed. They were no interest of removing the scariness and the, and the, and the demonic presence from their, from their side of the, the sea. They sure love those pigs. There are not supposed to be any pigs in Israel. Pigs are unclean. They're not supposed to be raised for food. They're not supposed to be used at all. They're not supposed to be there. They're unclean. They couldn't be anywhere near. They're unkosher. They're not, they're not allowed by law. And so these guys had become so, well, who knows? Maybe the Romans loved pig, and they had just made it, you know, they were collaborators. Well, we can provide you with all the short ribs you need, you know. We can make sure that you can have all the, all the bacon you guys want every morning. Please just go away. You kind of, we lost a lot of head of cattle or a lot of head of hog today, you know. That's what they saw. Now, um, John chapter 3, verse 19 through 20 says this. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. These two guys get healed, and they want to follow Jesus on the boat. We know that from the other gospel. But Jesus tells them, no, I want you to stay here, and I want you to tell everybody what's happened to you. That's the only time he's ever said that. He told everybody else to be quiet. He tells these two guys with this 10-city region, the Decapolis, I want you to tell everybody. Now, when Jesus comes back across, which we're going to see later on, they're all saved. All 10 cities, despite what the... Fat cats, whoever was in charge of the swine, wanted, you cannot stop the gospel. Please leave. Please go away. Don't ruin our economy over here anymore. I'll go. But you got a bigger problem. you got two guys here that have had demons removed from their lives, and they're going to testify everywhere they go of what I've done for them. And these two men change the entire region for Christ. A lot of power in just giving your testimony. There's a lot of power in just telling people what Christ has done for you. You don't even have to tell them. The people that know they're in trouble and need someone to do something in their life quick, when they hear your story about what this person, Jesus, has done for you, I want that. I want that. And these 10 cities, a huge crowd meets them and they come back across. And it's effective. 
There's a multitude that, this is the last thing. There was a multitude that Jesus left on the other side. Mega church. Thousands of people listened to him on the Sermon on the Mount. Thousands of people going from city. Thousands of people bringing that. I mean, just, he was thronged with people. He says, now I'm going to pause this for a minute because I got two guys over here that need Jesus. They need me. He was able to leave all of that and go do what he needed to do for those two. It was just as important as the mega over here because those two guys are now going to be the Billy Grahams of the New Testament here, and they're going to save all these people, and I'm not going to have to do a thing. They're going to tell everybody about what has happened. They get saved. Your ministry is not too small. He just needs someone to willing to go do it. I need someone to go minister to that guy right there. Aren't there like 100 I could minister to? No, I need that guy right there saved. I know. Okay, I'll do that. I'll do that. But is there 100 I could do? Just would you minister to Billy over here? He needs to know Jesus. I need you to teach Sunday school. I need you to tell him about the Lord. You know? Okay, okay. Billy, Graham, pay attention. You know, Jesus loves you and you need to accept Christ. You'll say, I do. Wow, you know. We have no idea. All we have to do is be obedient. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus' love, his care as a shepherd, his heart, even for the two or the thousands. It made no difference to him. It was just people. He just saw hurt. He saw needs, and he wanted to meet them. But he wanted them to know something more, not just the physical healing, but the spiritual healing that they needed, the forgiveness of sins that they needed. And so we thank you for this wonderful chapter for us. Help us to be really paying attention, Lord, to what you have for us uh, this week. Whether it's one or a hundred or a thousand people, Lord, help us to be faithful and to just sharing our testimony with those who, who want to know. We want to tell them all about what you've done for us. Lord, bless these folks as they go tonight. Bless the kids, bless the teachers that have been sharing with them, the worship leaders that led them in worship before. And I pray that you bless them all on that side also. In Jesus' name, amen. If you need prayer before you go, be glad to pray with you. Otherwise, have a good rest of the week.